Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, this is Connor here again with another episode of Earned. Um, this is a podcast where we try to learn from people that we really respect in the market, uh, particularly those in the beauty, fashion, and lifestyle industries. Um, and today we have Savannah Sachs, uh, the CEO of Tula, joining us. Thanks so much for joining, Savannah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for the discussion. Well, I think I am even more pumped than you are. Um, so as we were talking about before, um, I did a lot of research on you, and it is fairly impressive what you've accomplished in, uh, I think we are, the, we are the same age, so it's really depressing on my side, but I'm going to go ahead and read <laughs> through some of your accomplishments. You did your undergrad at Princeton in psychology. Um, while you were there, you were the varsity, you were a captain on the varsity rowing team. Um, not Dever, captain, not oh, captain, okay. unfortunately, but um, yeah, a proud team member. <laughs> oh, I swear it said captain next to your name on one of the, I looked through like high school, high school, not college. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay. That <laughs> makes more sense. Um, but then after that, you went on to do some management consulting for a few years and then got your MBA at Harvard. Um, after that, you went to the UK and joined Birchbox, mm -hmm. where you turned it into the number one box in the UK, beauty box in the UK, and eventually became COO. Um, serve on the board of the Eric and Hannah Sachs Foundation, um, as well as you're now the CEO of Tula, which is you know exploding in, in every facet. So in EMV, revenue, headcount. Um, so for 2020 so far, you don't know this number, but you are up 64% in EMV year over year, which Amazing. is great. Um, and I read that you guys were on track for a record month of sales in May. Was that, did that yes. kind of conclude correctly? Yeah, record sales a month, uh, record sales in April and then May right on track with April. So really great results so far. Super impressive. Um, I mean, obviously super impressive considering you guys do have like a fairly sizable retail footprint as well. Um, so to be able to rebound from that and do so well is super impressive. Um, so yeah, so today I look forward to asking all the questions about Birchbox, you know, how you went from psychology to your MBA, Tula, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, but I think to start out, obviously, I would assume you're still kind of in quarantine. You're based in New York right now, I think, right? Yes, based in New York. And um, I actually just moved to Brooklyn last week. So uh, I was supposed to move in March, but delayed for obvious reasons. And yeah. so in Brooklyn, quarantining in New York. Um, and the entire team obviously work from home. So we're living the Zoom life. Yeah. How has that been kind of adapting now that you're a few months in? You know, I think that overall it's, it's gone even better than I expected. I think, you know, the, the little things like defaulting to video on Zoom and staying connected via Slack and regular team standups and making sure that you're taking time for those casual conversations are really important to make sure that you're staying connected as a team. Um, but we've felt overall really productive, um, but we certainly do miss each other. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think one of the nice things is when you've been with a company for a little while, I think you can kind of keep it going via Zoom mm -hmm. calls and Slack messages. Um, I think we're still trying to figure out, you know, how we replicate the, you know, the casual in-person stuff. Exactly. Um, it's the water cooler dynamic that, that you lose. And so yeah. we actually created a Slack channel called Water Cooler um, <laughs> to try to keep that, you know, more informal social chit chat live. But it's, it's not the same as being in person, obviously. Totally. Yeah, we uh, we're going to have to figure it out. I think the the way that we'll do it once COVID's a little bit in a better position, I think, or at least one of the ways that we're talking about exploring is doing what the base camp guys do. So they, you know, they have an office space that people can work in if they want mm -hmm. to. Um, and then, but then I think it's three times a year they get together for like a week and do just sessions all week. And so you get like a really dense period of time together a few times a year. And then the rest of the time it's, you know, just all remote. Yeah. So I think that's probably what we'll try testing out once things are a little, you know, a little better. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. Um, so, you know, I know in the last podcast I listened to, you talked about both your parents being entrepreneurs and mm -hmm. that being a big inspiration for you. Um, you know, what did they do? What, what, uh, I, I, that was the question that I wanted to ask. I'm like, okay, great. As an entrepreneur, now I want to know what kinds of businesses they were running. Yeah. 
Yeah, so as I said, um, both of my parents were entrepreneurs, and so I think I learned how rewarding it can be to build something from them, um, as well as though the challenges and highs and lows of it. And my mom actually started a retail business in the 70s. Um, started out in Cambridge, Massachusetts, actually um, sewing canvas bags. And she built upon that business to now have a chain of specialty retail stores across the US. Um, and it's entirely brick and mortar um, and specialty retail, so largely driven today by tourism. And so that business, as you could imagine, has been incredibly hard hit this year um, and lots of challenging decisions for them to make. Um, but, you know, she built that business from scratch, um, starting at a time when that was really not the norm for, for women. And so incredibly impressed and always inspired by her. And my dad's story is a little bit different. Um, that was my, my mom's one shot and, and she made it, although ups and downs. Um, my dad is, his story is one of nine failed ventures. Um, <laughs> and then eventually he, he actually found and joined a small telecommunications company that really needed leadership to take it to the next level of growth. And so, in many ways, my story is actually similar to his, where you know I joined Tula um, to help scale and, and drive growth through this next phase. Um, and I think that's what my sweet spot is: is is joining early stage companies um, and really help lead through through the next phase of growth. Um, and so, took inspiration from both of them, um, but um, lots of interesting learnings from both. Yeah, that has to be a really interesting kind of just dinner, daily dinner conversation. Just, you know, like my mom was in, she had her master's in psychology and then she was in uh, probation. So she dealt with, you know, people going through kind of tough times. Yeah. It was just an interesting, you know, like I reflect on like what they would talk about every night when you're sitting mm -hmm. at dinner and, you know, your parents are talking. Um, and so that's got to be really helpful. It's like an early MBA that you got just every night kind of hanging out with your parents. Yeah, my sister-in-law always jokes that as a family, we love to talk business. <laughs> so it definitely dominates the dinner table conversation. I would have to imagine. Um, so what then led you to psychology? Uh, what, what made you decide that was the right focus for, for college? You know, I wish I could say I gave it more thought, but to be honest, it was simple as, you know, my freshman year, I was taking Psych 101, and it was the reading and the homework I did first. You know, I just loved and, and was fascinated by understanding what makes people tick and what motivates them. And um, I just found it terribly interesting. And I think in some ways, looking back, you know, it really was the beginning of why I like being in consumer because, you know, you're focused on building that direct relationship with the customer and seeing really what resonates and what doesn't. And, um, you know, fundamentally, I think leading a team is all about understanding motivation as well. So I think it's ended up being an interesting foundation for the way I, I view the world. Um, but to be honest, it was as simple as it was the reading I enjoyed the most. Yeah, just the thing you wanted to dive into more. Exactly. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I I was similar. I like the university I went to, you had to declare your major before you got there, which was oh, wow. because there's pretty big disparities in like the difficulties of the major. Like it's a really well-known engineering and architecture school. But right, it, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so you, you know, it was, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, when you're 18 years old, how do you make that decision? Exactly. Um, but you have to imagine, I mean, that's, it's a foundation for management, foundation for marketing, right? Foundation for just generally thinking about consumer behavior. Um, so it's cool. Um, yeah. And then consulting, right? So that was the next step. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I saw that you said pharmaceutical, consumer. What, what kinds of companies did you work through there? And what were some of the lessons that you learned uh, from those companies? Yeah, I mean, I, I loved consulting. You know, you worked with incredibly smart people and, and really got to see inside so many different organizations and, and cultures and business models and, and strategic plans. And the way I focused actually was, was not on industry. So to your point, I worked across industries, um, but I really focused in on, on strategy and specifically growth strategy, 
talent strategy, org design, change management. And so again, really focused on um, almost the, the psychology of businesses um, and, and really what made businesses tick to unlock outsized growth. So, you know, I think that um, was such a great learning opportunity, again, where you see across different businesses um, really focusing in on growth strategy through those um, levers of talent or change um, and um, somewhat applying what I had learned in college, but also learning a ton from the smart people I was around. Yeah, I mean, I think that the interesting thing about kind of the consulting model is it feels like it's just... (laughs) It's just a way to get a bunch of really, really smart people together to work on, you know, a problem as like an outside, you know, as an outsider, right? Which is, I think, especially when you're young in your career, being able to see like a variety of different problems mm-hmm. um, is just exposure that like you wouldn't get inside of a single firm. Um, yeah, exactly. It's that breadth and range. It's, it's really remarkable. For sure. Um, was there anything specific like... Were there things that you like, you know, you, this is a nugget I've kept with me since then from a very specific company or was it more just kind of generally uh, informative? I think for me, one of the biggest lessons was really seeing that the businesses that focused on creating and evolving a fantastic team culture were the most successful. And that was the order of operations. It was like focus in on your people and culture and the business results will follow. Um, So I think that's definitely sort of as I think about um, across clients and and sort of one overarching ethos or takeaway, it's definitely that. Did you have clients that were, you know, kind of culture deficit or kind of talent deficit when you walked in? You're like this because it feels like if you're at a significant deficit on the talent side or on the culture side, like that is not an easy ship to, to move, right? That's not an easy change to make. Yeah. And, 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 you know, for some, um, for some clients, they already had a really strong culture and they were looking to evolve it for the future, you know, Mm -hmm. given the pace of change in in the industry. Um, and there were others that, that were struggling and that's why they brought us in, um, to help with like an outside fresh perspective about how to really up the ante on, on their talent strategy and, um, how they think about culture and change management to evolve it. So really the full spectrum and lots of learnings on, 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 um, you know, both ends of the coin or both sides of the coin, both ends of the spectrum rather. <laughs> um, so, you know, from there you went and got your MBA. Um, mm-hmm. and I mean, that's a fairly traditional track, right? Going from consulting to getting your MBA. So it would make sense as being kind of a natural transition. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but what, you know, what was the thinking there? Did you consider other options, you know, other than going to school, you know, is it something you generally recommend to other people? Did it feel like you got, you know, cause it is a significant, um, opportunity cost from a time yeah. perspective, right? That's two years. It's a lot of time. Um, yeah. Talk to me about that a little yeah. bit. Definitely. You know, I think that, um, when people ask me about business school and if they, if I'd recommend it, I, you know, I always say it depends. Um, mm-hmm. it, to your point is a big opportunity cost and a, and a, um, sizable commitment and I think it comes down to where are you in your career and, and what are you looking to do next? You know, I think for me, it ended up being incredibly worthwhile because I really pivoted in my career. You know, I went from management consulting and then um, joined the startup world and realized that I love being an operator um, and being in that high growth startup environment. And so I think for me, it, it helped me discover that like there was a whole new level of job satisfaction, right? Um, yeah. I mentioned I loved consulting, um, but I had no idea how much I could love, you know, building a brand and business and team. And so mm-hmm. I think it both gave me the opportunity to explore that and then also um, actually allowed me to make that pivot um, in terms of the roles that I've been able to to take on since then. So um, I loved it, um, but it certainly is a big decision and it's not for everyone. It really depends on, on your career goals and if an MBA is the best way to go about it. So what made you decide that kind of growing a business was more interesting than starting a business, right? So what was the, because obviously both your parents started things from mm-hmm. kind of the ground up. And it sounds like your dad was a little bit of the inspiration around like coming yeah. into something established and just making it much bigger and much better. 
Um, but you know, have you ever given thought to kind of getting something off the ground from the start? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think they're they're both exciting career paths, and you know, never say never. Maybe I will start something one day. Um, but I think for me, my sweet spot and, and passion is really around, you know, joining a, a brand or business that is right around product market fit, and then taking it through that next phase of growth. Like I love building a team, um, you know, establishing the right culture. Um, supercharging the growth trajectory, um, focusing on, on building the right sustainable, you know, P&L and, and building that forever brand business and team. And so I think it's just my, my personal interest. And, and I think that it's, it's easy to, um, be razzle dazzled by, you know, the, the thrill and excitement of starting something, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm not sure that's where I would be best. You know, right out of college, briefly, I joined uh, two founders building a high-tech toy company, and it was awesome and a very cool learning opportunity, um, but not my cup of tea. Um, <laughs> and so I think it's just finding what's right for you and, and not totally. necessarily um, feeling like um, the norm or the dominant stories out there in terms of how to build your career are necessarily a one-size-fits-all uh, approach. So this is what works for me. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think you're right in terms of having the right fit. I feel like for me, you know, if we were to get Tribe up to call it 400 employees, 500 employees, I think that my interest in it would start to wane, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that that's not necessarily, like, I think I get a lot of satisfaction out of, you know, um, coming up with something that's out of thin air, right? Out of dust. Yeah. Um, I think it's, and I think my skill set is, a better fit for that generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's cool to find kind of your, like, this is something I'm really good at. Like, this is something I'm going to stick with because I've realized that both I like it and I'm generally, you know, a good fit for it. So makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well said. <laughs> um, okay. So let's jump into Birchbox then, right? So this is when you're really, um, you know, diving in deep. You obviously you went to London um, would love to know what the motivation was there. I'd imagine it wasn't an accident or maybe it was just opportunistic, right? Like there's yeah. a really great opportunity in London and that's why I'm moving there. Um, so we'd love to know about that. And then a little bit about how, you know, you then took that and really did quite well within the UK. I think you guys, when you left were the number one brand or box, um, and then all the way to being COO would love to know a little bit about that journey as well as the, you know, the kind of, uh, why did you move to London? What was mm-hmm. the thinking there? Yeah, definitely. You know, it, it, it wasn't part of the original plan. Um, I didn't intend to, to move and live abroad, but an opportunity came up to run the UK market for Birchbox and I decided to take the leap and I fell in love with London. It's such a great city. Um, I miss it in many ways, um, although it is nice to be back closer to friends and family, um, especially in times like these. Um, yeah. And, you know, it was it was such a great opportunity because Birchbox, we were very localized in our business and org. And so it was a fully localized um, UK team and an entirely separate P&L. And um, the only shared resource really was was our tech team. And so it was a great opportunity to really learn how to be a general manager and be able to build everything from the ground up, you know, to build out the team and culture, to drive rapid growth. We also pushed to profitability and, and hit cash flow um, positive. And so it was an awesome opportunity to sort of, you know, take this, this um, powerful global brand and concept um, and really localize it in the right ways to the UK market. Um, and it was, it was amazing. It, it was an incredible learning opportunity, so many interesting challenges. Um, and, you know, we were able to, to hit some really exciting milestones. Um, and personally, fantastic to be able to, to live in London and, and get a sense of what it looks like to run an international business. Um, so it was, it was a wild ride and great adventure. For sure. I know, you know, obviously Birchbox has had, you know, some struggles over the last couple of years. You know, did you see those as, because obviously you eventually transitioned to Tula from there. Mm-hmm. Um, were you starting to see that at the time? Or, you know, what do you think, do you think, like, if you could go back in time and make a pivot in strategy that may have prevented some of this, um, 
have you thought about that or you know was it something that really at the time you just weren't seeing those same cracks in the foundation or I would love to know a little bit more about that yeah, so after um, spending three years in London running the UK market, there was an opportunity to take on the role of COO back in the New York headquarters. And um, it was really exciting scope. It was leading the US buying and merchandising teams, uh, all the operations, the technology team, as well as helping lead and, and partner with um, our European markets. And so um, I took on that role and, and was really excited for rapid scaling, um, building a sustainable business model, and most importantly, like getting to build the team and the culture. And so that was the stage I was focused on. Um, you know, wanted to stay in consumer, again, like thinking about what the consumer, um, what motivates them, what makes them tick, um, and really that excitement and thrill of putting out something into the market that you like immediately get feedback on um, in terms of sales and customer reviews. And I decided to stay in beauty. You know, it. Um, I sort of stumbled into beauty joining Birchbox. And I think there's so many reasons why it's an amazing dynamic industry. Um, you know, the customer passion, um, but also the margin, the economics, um, the investor landscape, the strategic landscape. I think it's a really dynamic space. Um, and what we're seeing right now in, in, in times like uh, where we're currently in, it's also um, relatively recession-proof. And so I think there's a lot of reasons why it's a strong category and why I personally find it exciting and interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, started to narrow my focus more in beauty after having looked a little bit more broadly in consumer. And, you know, when I came across Tula, um, it felt like there was something really special because there was this really differentiated brand positioning, you know, at the intersection of beauty and wellness, um, a clean brand with this unbelievable differentiated functional story around probiotics. And, and our founder, Dr. Rashini Raj, is a practicing gastroenterologist. And so really unique founding story. Um, and so it felt like there was something really remarkable there and so much more we could do in terms of the next phase of growth. But ultimately, it really comes down to culture fit you know, and meeting the team and getting a sense of what's important to them and, and if it feels like the right fit both ways. Um, as well as the key thing, reading the customer reviews. And, you know, I'll never forget going on to Tula.com and reading through the reviews and seeing the passion and love that customers had for the products and for the brand and thinking, like, this, this is the place I want to be. That's really cool. I mean, I think it's... You want to make sure that you've got a solid foundation with the foundation being product, right? So if you don't have exactly. the right product, it doesn't matter how good you are at marketing. It doesn't matter how good you are at talent you know, acquisition uh, or talent strategy. It, you're really kind of yes. fighting an uphill battle. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, this is a shameless plug, but we, we had never really asked our clients to rate us uh, mm -hmm. online. And so we finally did. Um, and we're now the number two highest rated influencer marketing software and the number one easiest to use. Um, Congrats. We didn't even juice it. I wish we were, we, I, I actually wish we had juiced the numbers, but mm -hmm. we just like emailed all our users and asked them to review us. And uh, that's yeah, amazing. It, through, it was pretty cool. I mean, it's just like really cool. Um, yeah. And you the also ease learn. of use is such a ease of use. I feel like that's, that's going to create a sticky customer. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's just a ton of stuff that was really like the other one that I thought was really interesting was I've read a lot about customer success, right? So mm -hmm. what causes customers to be loyal, et cetera. And in B2B businesses, which is what we're in, um, uh, like ease of doing business with is the number mm -hmm. one predictor of loyalty. Like, are you easy to do business with? Yeah. Um, and that for that, we also rated number one. And that the reason I don't plug that is or, or, I'm not just plugging that for fun, but we actually made some pretty significant changes in the way that we did business starting about a year and a half ago, two years ago, when we brought on Ben, our new direct, our director of sales. So mm -hmm. it was like moving to all digital signatures, moving to just like all these small things, um, creating a separate like in-app support system and all these things. It was like a big investment on our side. So to see it pay off is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but I think the other thing you get from the reviews like you talked about this with your skincare quiz is like you find opportunities as well, right? It's like, oh, yes. hey, everybody really likes this, but this little 
part is off, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I think that's one of the the, the magics, uh, the, the, one of the, the elements that's really magical about direct-to-consumer is this really tight feedback loop that you get. Like you release something into the market and you get instant feedback on like, hey, yes. I like this, I don't like this. You can see repurchase rates by SKU. Like you can just do things that are really, really hard to do with a traditional retail business um, that I have to exactly. imagine you guys are leveraging that too. Yeah. And I think that directly feeds into then speed, right? Like because that feedback to your point is so instant, you have that feedback loop going, you can just have all of your decision-making informed by that and and be able to move faster. Um, There's no delay, you know, through a retailer. And so I think that's definitely very powerful. For sure. Um, Okay. So let's talk a little bit about kind of your leadership style. Um, Mm -hmm. So I want to get into Tula more, but also want to ask some questions there. So one of the things I've heard you talk about is a purpose statement. Um, so mm-hmm. you kind of, you know, very intentionally crafted one of those. And I'm a big fan of those. I think we haven't done it yet, but I'm going to create one as a family, right? So like mm-hmm. for our family, I want to do that as well as some values associated. Um, yours that you listed, assuming it's still the same, is a happy, high-performing team, um, which sounds consistent with what you said about like kind of talent being at the core of what you think drives success. Um, but how did you, yeah, how did you come to that, that like, this is the statement and what did you consider any others or, uh, would love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. You know, I, I tried to be intentional in terms of my leadership style and, um, what I need to work on and improve. And so as part of that, over the past five, six years, you know, I've worked with, um, coaches and also, you know, done more structured, um, leadership development programs and tried to take time to self-reflect. And in one of those, um, development courses, we developed a a leadership purpose statement and, you know, it, it, it came to me pretty quickly because, you know, I think to your point, it it had been sort of building in terms of my ethos from my consulting days and through business school. And as I thought about, you know, what are my superpowers and what do I need to improve upon and, and sort of what's my philosophy of, of what makes a business perform well, it really starts with and is all about team and culture first. You know, I believe that business results follow a strong team and culture, and that's therefore the order of priority. And so for me, my goal is first and foremost, you know, build a happy, high-performing team, um, and then the rapid growth will follow. And so, you know, I have that purpose statement, as, as cheesy as it sounds, on, on the top of my running to-do list at all times as a, as a constant reminder. And um, I think that is really sort of my North Star, if you will. Um, and I don't always get it right, certainly not. Um, and so it's really about keeping that top of mind and continually raising the bar about how I accomplish that and how I tweak and evolve my leadership style to meet the needs of, of my team at the given time and, and phase of growth that we're in. And how do you think about like measuring high performing, right? So like when you're thinking about kind of measurement of performance, obviously there's like fairly traditional kind of KPI models, you know, quarterly updates. How do you structure that? How do you measure? And do you, you know, like the, if you've heard of the, like the Google OKR system, right? You set like Mm -hmm. super ambitious goals and then hope to get to 70% um, with the idea being that, you know, it causes you to stretch and think in different ways. How, How do you think about kind of measuring performance, setting KPIs? Do you have like a specific philosophy there? Yeah, you know, we, we, I think, are very focused on how do we set a very high-level vision or purpose and then establish, you know, if that is the why, the thing that motivates us, what is therefore our, our mission and annual plan and strategic objectives, which is more like the what, what do we want to accomplish? And then at the more detailed level, at the team and individual level, you have specific goals in the how. Um, and ideally, you have... KPIs and metrics across them. You know, one thing I will say though is that you can't measure everything. You know, especially in consumer and in beauty, it's it's a deeply personal and emotional category, and you're building a brand, and and so you do also need that mix of right brain and left brain, which is actually one of our core values at Tula is to really think about both sides of the equation. Um, and we we overall are, are very metrics driven team. So we have you know full weekly and monthly dashboards and very yep. focused on the numbers. Um, but I would say with respect to you know how I focus as a leader and, and again one of the core elements that you need to keep an eye on 
It's really um, our culture survey. So we regularly survey the team, um, and we're actually in the next month sending out our, our next um, round to ask them, you know, um, do they feel we have clarity of vision? Is there strong alignment in the organization? How is communication? How are we feeling about resourcing? Um, how are we doing on recognition and performance? Um, and, and really test across all aspects of um, the experience on the team and use that data and information and insights, both, both quantitative and qualitative, to inform what we're doing. So I would actually argue that, you know, in addition to all of the business KPIs that you absolutely need to keep an eye on and, and work towards improving, um, don't forget how important your culture survey is to chart where you should be focusing. Yeah, I mean, we started doing one of those, I think, four or five quarters ago um, and did it on a quarterly basis. Um, we refer to it as a pulse survey internally. Yes. And, uh, you know, the initial results weren't great. Like they were like, oh, we have a lot that we need to work on. Um, and, you know, and assuming the numbers aren't being biased in any ways, you've seen like really strong and consistent improvement across a variety of those areas. Mm -hmm. And I think just asking people those questions then makes them more open to both one, they feel like they're being listened to because they are. And two, you know, um, they're then more likely to speak up, right? Because they say, Hey, they want my opinion. They're asking for my opinion on how they can be better as leaders, as managers. Um, and so, you know, I feel there's, you know, that there's approval there, right. For me to speak up. So it's, yes. uh, I'm a huge advocate of that as well. It's, it made a pretty significant difference. Uh, internally for us. And, and to your point, it also builds collective ownership around the culture, right? Like, mm -hmm. of course, myself, the leadership team, we have an outsized impact on the team culture, but it's each and every one of us day in, day out in terms of our behaviors and interactions that creates that sense of culture and team. And so, you know, what we do is share out all of the results, like 100% transparency, um, not only in the spirit of transparency, but to create that collective ownership that each and every one of us can think about, like, where are we strong to be proud of that we want to lean in more? And what's not so great that we need to fix and improve. Um, and and that'll shift over time, right? Like sometimes I talk about the fact that, you know, Tula, we're growing so quickly. It's like we're in the awkward teenage years um, and that comes with growing pains. And so how yep. do you anticipate those, normalize them by talking about them and solve for what you can solve for, but also acknowledge that it's crazy startup life. And so um, it's not everyone's cup of tea, um, but it's it's really about how do we continue to raise the bar and evolve the culture in the right ways. Managing during hyper growth is, is a really tough challenge. I think, cause you know, every time, you know, when you go from 10 employees to 50 employees, everything changes, right? It's probably mm -hmm. more like 10 to 25, right? But every time that, and, and on top of that, right? You have to have people that are growing at that same rate of change in order to like keep up, right? Yes. Um, and so, and if they aren't, which is not a bad thing, you know, then you have to deal with like, well, okay, now we have to bring somebody else in that is, you know, at the appropriate VP level for this role, for this department, for this thing, yeah. which is just a very tough challenge to, to manage through. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about kind of initially coming into the CEO role at Tula. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, coming in as the CEO of an established company with an established leadership team, um, you know, is there are some challenges there. And it's something I've personally never done. So I'd love to know kind of what your process was there. Maybe some, you know, things that you learned if there were mistakes that you made or things that mm -hmm. you thought worked really well to kind of earn the trust of the team. Um, would love to hear a little bit more about that. And, um, you know, and as well as it looked like you and Julia kind of transitioned simultaneously. So I knew Julia mm -hmm. back from when the company first got founded. So I've got a very early, yeah. I knew it when you guys had, I met Julia when there was like just the three of them, um, when they had first started. Yes. So, um, would love to know more about how you managed through that transition and some of the things that you learned. 
Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think it was a, a pretty unique scenario where um, Julia, the, the prior CEO at Tula, was actually moving to London for personal reasons. And so we were sort of ships crossing in the night. Um, and, you know, uh, I shared tips on, on London life. And um, what was great is that she was actually staying in the El Catterton family. So El Catterton mm-hmm. is our um, key investor and they have a great portfolio of brands. And so she was going on to another um, El Catterton brand, Sweaty Betty. And so she's still in the family and, and we still are, are very much um, in touch and, and just actually texting last week about everything that's going on um, in in the U.S. market around COVID-19. And so that really helped with the transition because she was able to, you know, onboard and, and really be that sounding board. And, you know, I think it's it's both easier, easier and, and infinitely harder to join an established company as a CEO. And um, I think there's lots of lessons learned and things I would do differently. Um, and I think primarily it's around that right balance of wanting to move quickly and have a positive impact um, versus really taking time to listen and earn the trust fully of the team. And, you know, the team was so welcoming and, um, there was so much going on, it was not always easy to make that balance. You know, and I think in retrospect, I probably moved a little bit too quickly and I should have slowed down a bit. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And um, this is what I now tell every single person that onboards at Tula, you know, I'd rather you move a little bit more slowly and really get to know the team and the culture and the business and the brand um, because you'll be able to move faster in the long term. You know, take your time. And I think pulling that pressure off of um, a new team member, you know, especially the more senior they get, really helps set everyone up for success. Um, so I think to me, that's one of the biggest lessons learned. Um, and, you know, something more minor, but worth mentioning as well. I didn't take any time off in between Birchbox and Tula, and I think that was a mistake. You know, I, I think you need time to rest and recharge. Um, and so I would offer that as another learning or advice, you know, take the time you need. Yeah, my father-in-law, who has been a long time kind of CFO, so he's done it for, you know, he's been a CFO for probably 20 or 30 years, um, has done very well for himself. And, you know, just, and, but what he's done is in between each transition, he's taken like a full year off. So he's wow, done yeah. like three or four full one year breaks, mm-hmm. which is obviously like a luxury, right? Not everybody yeah. can do that yeah. financially. Um, but I know that before I started tribe, um, you know, I took, or I took seven months off with my girlfriend, mm-hmm. who's now my wife and we like traveled. We went to Australia, Bali, Thailand, New Zealand. And it was just, you know, and it gave me the headspace to then say like, okay, let's really evaluate whether or not we want to start a company. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately we did. So yeah, I'm a huge, uh, I huge advocate for that as well. Um, and on your, your point about kind of moving slowly when you first get there, it's just so hard, right? Cause you come in, you have yeah. all these ideas, all these things you want to implement, exactly. and, you know, um, like I observed, so Ben on our team came in, um, as a, you know, kind of the interim director of sales and then mm-hmm. kind of took on a few different uh, roles while people were out on maternity leave. And I think there was some initial hesitation, um, in having like somebody come in from the outside to lead a team. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he handled it really well. He came in, he didn't change anything. He just kind of went with the existing flow for a while and tried to proactively yeah. solve problems at the team surface. Like, Hey, this is a problem I have. So instead of coming in with his own agenda and his own things that he wanted to do, he said, I'm going to like, listen to the team, focus on their problems, yeah. solve those first. Then once you have their trust, then you can like, you know, get them on board to start implementing the things that you want to implement. Um, which I thought was, I just, it was really cool to observe that. So, um, sounds like a similar kind of learning there. Definitely. Um, so let's talk a little bit about influencers, in-person events, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of the stuff um, that I'd seen from you in like January, February, March, it, this was like the in-person year. Like this was the year of all the events at retail, all the influencer activations in person. You know, how have you pivoted through that? Um, mm-hmm. And maybe how have you kind of redistributed some of that budget? Would love to hear about your, your approach, both on the retail side and on the influencer side as well. Yeah, you know, I think um, one of our superpowers at Tula was was creating 
really fantastic in-person events and in particular for retail, um, that's been a key part of our strategy in Ulta. Um, and so obviously this year looks very different and, yep. you know, one of the advantages of, of being a nimble startup is being able to pivot. So, um, you know, we have been fortunate enough to be able to reprioritize and pivot. Um, and actually we're exceeding all of our targets, um, across channels, believe it or not. So, you know, it helps that the majority wow. of our business is direct to consumer. And so we're able to capture, you know, um, demand from the shutdown of brick and mortar. And, you know, as I mentioned, being a um, clean brand, doctor founded, focused on probiotics, really sitting at that intersection of health and wellness, you know, it's really been about um, being top of the, the consumer psyche right now. Um, and so business is booming. We, you know, we feel very well positioned and lucky and the team has been crushing it in terms of execution. So feeling very fortunate. Um, and, you know, more specifically in terms of the retail eventing, you know, we're currently reimagining our, our retail strategy. Um, and so I can't give away all the secrets, but, um, stay tuned. You <laughs> know, we're really focused on, you don't have yeah, to, yeah. nobody will listen to this. <laughs> Can, uh, so you know, stay feel. tuned. Um, <laughs> but uh, but in the short term, what we did is, you know, we have a full time retail sales team, and normally they are in Ulta and Nordstrom, you know, day in day, day out, interacting with customers um, and the store teams to tell them about Tula. And so what we did is actually cross trained them to be digital skincare advisors, and so they now are talking to customers directly via chat on Tula.com. And so we basically took that in-store experience and consultative education moment and brought it online. Um, so that's one specific example of how we pivoted. Uh, more broadly, we've really thought about reallocating budget from events and in-store moments um, and in-person moments generally to digital content creation and continuing to scale our influencer partnerships. And so those, I'd say, are the big two buckets we've really decided to lean in more on, um, which are really just accelerations or sort of ramping up of things that we had been doing um, previously as well. Yeah, and I think your influencer strategy, especially on the kind of last click attribution side, so actually just seeing like, we know that these influencers drove these dollars. Yeah. Um, the numbers you've put out there are pretty unbelievable in terms of 50%. Because that means if 50% is last click, then like there's a lot that's happening offline too, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that's happening that you can't track. So that means it's, you know, higher than that, right? It's probably 70%, which is just an, an unbelievable number. Um, not inconsistent with what I've heard in the market. I have a good friend mm -hmm. who follows a ton of influencers. That's how she was introduced to the brand. And now due to the quality of the products, she is a, you know, an advocate and repeat purchaser. Great to hear. Which is great. Um, so, you know, you talked about increasing your investment there. Mm -hmm. There's a variety of ways you can do that, right? So one is headcount, another one's events. That's kind of mm -hmm. out. Giftings, right? You can do more paid partnerships. You know, mm -hmm. are there, is it kind of increased investment across the board or are you diving deep on kind of certain areas? Like, is it growing the team? Yeah. Like what, where yeah. are those areas? Yeah, so as you mentioned, you know, influencer partnerships and marketing has been an incredibly powerful growth engine for us. And um, according to last click attribution, it's about 50% of revenue on Tula.com. To your point, more nuanced um, when you look at multi-touch attribution, and we really look mm -hmm. at both. And the way we run our program is a bit different. So we run it as a performance marketing channel, and it's entirely based on ROI, um, specifically ROAS, return on ad spend. And so it's, it's for us, you know, beyond, um, brand awareness. It's, it's really about those dollar sales and we're tracking everything because we give influencers commission. You know, they are, we really see them as entrepreneurs and business partners and that they're earning a share of every dollar that they drive. And so because of that, we're able to directly track and attribute sales across the board and really manage it to that ROI threshold and metric. Um, and it's our most efficient performance channel. So incredibly powerful growth engine. Um, we run it entirely in-house with a rock star team. And so to your question around, you know, how are we leaning in there and what's next? Um, we are building out the team um, and continuing to, to um, 
really like scale and specialize in different tiers of influencers and, and really support growth from that perspective. Um, we're also leaning in even more on data and dashboards and doing a much better job to integrate all of our influencer data and metrics um, in ways that we can easily track and, and um, work towards as a team. Um, the other thing that we're doing this year is our first two influencer product collaborations, which we're incredibly excited about. So, you know, influencer product collaborations have been very frequent and common in color cosmetics, but you actually really haven't seen much at all in skincare. And so we're excited to sort of um, be in uncharted territory and have some really exciting collaborations. Stay tuned. I can't share much more than that, um, but they'll be launching in the next few months. And um, that's an exciting sort of next next wave for our influencer program and team. Oh, I knew you guys were smart. Um, so <laughs> when we did a uh, we did a survey of influencers and brands, mm -hmm. uh, this is about two years ago now. Um, looking, and we asked them like, what kinds of activities do you do? Right? Do you repost content? Do you do partnerships? Do you do blah mm -hmm. blah 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 blah? And then what we wanted to see was where things were different. So you know, brands are doing this, but influencers really don't care about it, or vice mm -hmm. versa. None of the brands are doing it, but this is the most important thing to influencers. Yeah. Um, and a product collaboration obviously was the number one most impactful thing you could do on their side. Wow. Um, yeah. And so you know, and on top of that, very few brands were doing it, which is just a huge missed opportunity to me. Um, yeah. You know, I know Pixie, who is one of our oldest clients, yes. is doing really well, has done that quite a bit. Yes, they um, have. But, yes. I, but I think skincare has been much more hesitant for whatever reason to, to participate. And mm -hmm. um, so, so nice work. Well, uh, and, you know, in part, it's, 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 um, it's a very involved product development process. You know, yeah. it can take over a year to bring a skincare product to market. And so, you know, I think to, to really have it be an authentic collaboration where you're building the product together, um, it's quite a long development cycle. And so I think that's been one of the barriers within skincare, um, but we decided to go for it. So we're excited, we're excited. It's gonna be fun. You guys will do great. Um, and so one of the things I think is interesting that I'd be curious to kind of get your perspective on is um, super impressive the way you guys have built it out as kind of a paid kind of performance channel. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that we talk a lot about is, you know, organic, right? It's organic coverage. And I think even if you were to look at, you know, a brand like you guys who is heavily invested on the paid side, mm -hmm. you know, 80 to 85% of the content created about you will just be people talking about you because they like you mm -hmm. um, on the influencer side. So how do you think about the interplay between those two? Um, do you guys manage that separately? Is there like a team on the paid side, a team on the, you know, the earned side? Um, how do you manage uh, or think about, think about that? It's a great question, and I, you know, I think it's um, it's something we want to give even more thought to. Right now, the influencer team is very focused on the paid partnerships. You know, whether that's um, our um, smaller, up and coming brand ambassadors that get a commission of sales, or you know, more of the um, macro, mid tier celebrity and up that have a hybrid commission and flat fee. Um, so, our influencer team overall is focused on paid partnerships. But I would say that it's very much with an emphasis on the relationship, right? Like our influencer team knows when our partner's birthdays are and how old their kids are and their favorite Chater Joe's snacks. And, and that truly high touch relationship is so critically important and, and important to us at Tula in terms of building these really deep, authentic partnerships. Um, and so I don't mean to say that like paid implies that it's not like really high touch um, and, mm -hmm, and personal mm -hmm. in terms of the relationships. Um, but I think that in terms of our organic strategy, you know, to your point, so incredibly important. Um, and we see that as like icing on the cake. Um, yep. And that that's something that we're creating by offering awesome products and a really dynamic brand and building a community, whether that's among customers or influencers and really just thinking about our community holistically. And so that really is the responsibility of all of us, 
right? Like it starts with the product development team, creating great product. It goes through the brand marketing team in terms of how we're interacting with our customers to the social team in terms of the community we're building. And so I would say that like our organic strategy is really holistic and the responsibility of the entire team. You know, even the customer operations and customer service, right? Like if you're getting your product on time quickly and it's beautifully packaged, and if you ever have an issue, you have a great customer experience, all of that matters. And so I would say that organic is actually all of our day jobs. Um, And that's how we think about it. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool to see all of the different approaches. Like for me, like part of this podcast has been, you know, us getting to learn about what Mm -hmm. works for other people. And, you know, like we know Tatcha and Drunk Elephant really well. And for them, organic is the cake, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Like that's the, that's the bulk of it. And that's what they focus on. Um, And Glow Recipe is similar, Um, you know, but then obviously you guys are approaching it in a different way that is being incredibly fruitful as well. And also, you know, feels aligned from an incentives perspective with regards to the creators, right? So, like, they're exactly. only endorsing a brand that they already are a really big fan of, and you're finding a way to, you know, basically uh, reward, uh, you know, that support, right? Uh, in a very tangible way, which also makes yeah. it really measurable, which is great. And I think your approach needs to be aligned to your channel strategy, right? Like because mm-hmm. Tula.com is the majority of our revenue, mm-hmm. we are very focused on efficiently driving new customers um, and driving growth on Tula.com. And it's very easy to measure that connection. And so I think that gives us confidence in the ability to invest in paid in really smart, thoughtful ways. Totally. All right. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know that we already over into your next meeting. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll do just one fun question. Uh, we'll keep mm-hmm. it short. Um, so, well, we'll make it a two-parter. So first okay. is, um, are you Netflix, YouTube, or cable? Right. Like what when you need to take a break, which I don't yep. know that you do, considering your your accolades at this point. I'm not sure if you ever do take breaks, <laughs> but if you do take a break, what where are you watching? Uh, where are you watching a show? Well, between those three, um, I don't have a TV and I cut the cord in terms of cable. So I'm definitely Netflix. Um, but in terms of my quarantine life, um, I really, you know, people have been developing new hobbies and baking sourdough bread. And all I have done is work, read the news and spend way too much time on TikTok. So, um, (laughs) I know it wasn't an option, but if I could pick Netflix or TikTok, it would be TikTok. Okay. There you go. Well, let's, we'll wrap it up on that. Um, thanks so much for joining Savannah as always. Um, you know, I think people are really going to love hearing from you and I think they're going to have an opportunity to learn a lot. And so we appreciate you taking the time out to, to chat yeah. with us and, um, yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time and very interesting discussion. So thank you. Of course. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at tribedynamics.com. Tribedynamics.com.